be reading uh, from 1 Thessalonians this morning, uh, chapter 1, and we'll begin in uh, verse 2, 2 through 10. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And I'll continue in chapter 2 with verse 13 through 16. For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, You welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they do not please God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. As we begin part two of our brief series, Let's go to the Lord yet again in prayer as we prepare our hearts to hear his word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself, the truth, uh, in this word, in this perfect word. And so, Lord, we ask now that knowing that this word is a living word, it's active, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, Lord, that you would now use it as an instrument of your grace to bring our hearts, uh, lasting change, that we may reflect your character and bring you much glory. So, Lord, would you teach and instruct and, and do that which is needed in our hearts and lives today that would bring about change that would bring you much glory. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week, we, we began a series that I've entitled Redeeming Grace, More Than a Name, and And as we opened that series last week, we opened it here in the first chapter of 
Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, and we considered last week how redeeming grace is the name of our congregation, but it's more than a name. In fact, redeeming grace, as we saw last week, is the very foundation of who we are. It's because of the redeeming grace of God in Christ that we exist as his people. In fact, that's the only reason we exist as his people. We don't exist as his people because we were wise enough or smart enough or capable enough on our own to form ourselves as his people, but rather God's grace was extended to us. He sought us out. He pursued us in love. He sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sins, and now we have been redeemed and rescued by his wonderful, marvelous grace. Amen? Amen. That was very weak, I'll just tell you. Uh, God's grace deserves much more than that. Amen? Amen. Okay, just making sure your heart is alive and beating. Um, so what do we do now? What, when we think about redeeming grace, it's the very foundation of who we are as Christians. Having been the recipients of grace, we now, as we talked about last week, have a new identity, and we begin the process of transformation. Today I want us to look at yet another fruit of God's redeeming grace. Yes, it gives us a new identity. Yes, it begins that work of transformation in our lives. But today I want us to particularly see how God's redeeming grace informs our mission. It it informs what we do as God's people, namely that we now exist for the propagation of, for the spread of, for the communication of God's redeeming grace. In fact, I will, I will make the, the argument uh, till the day I, the Lord brings me home. However that is, if I die or he comes back first, whichever that is, that, that the local church is God's primary tool for, for spreading his mission to the ends of the earth. I believe that. I, I'm grateful for parachurch organizations that come alongside and, and help assist. I'm, I'm grateful for those groups that, that, that participate in, in the spread of God's mission, but I'm deeply convinced that the local church, it's our primary responsibility to make the name of Christ known, to make the redeeming grace of God in Christ Jesus known to our community and to the ends of the earth. It's our job. It's our responsibility. So, as we looked at last week, we were looking at the church at Thessalonica. And the church at Thessalonica was a church that was born out of mission. In fact, you can go to Acts chapter 17. Let's do that together. Go to Acts chapter 17. I want you to see this. This mission is described for us here in Acts chapter 17 where Paul and Silas arrive in Thessalonica. And the, the, the word of God is preached. The, the gospel is, is communicated there and people are Saved. Look at verse 1 of Acts chapter 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to where? Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. This was Paul's uh, normal routine. Whenever he'd go to a new city, he would begin there in the synagogue preaching that Jesus was the Christ. Verse 2, Paul went in, as was his custom. Sounds like he just heard what I just said, right? And on Three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Listen to verse 4. And some of them were persuaded 
and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So Paul and Silas go, they proclaim Christ, and people are brought into the kingdom. Amen? They were born again. People were saved, and we see that in verse 4. That's good news, right? Great news. Well, it wasn't great news to all. Read verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. Taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So the church of Thessalonica was established, was planted through Paul and Silas and and their, their group going there to the city to proclaim Christ. People were saved. But we know, based upon Acts chapter 7, not the best of times. It, it caused a stir in the city, right? Last week when I, when I made reference to this, I said when, when, when they preached Christ, revival didn't break out, riots broke out. It was not uh, overall positively received from the city authorities and from others, although many were brought to Christ. And so this church was born out of a sense of mission that Paul and Silas and others were on, bringing the gospel to them, but it was now a new church existing in a, in a, in a struggling capacity because now they have people against them, actively persecuting them because of this good news. The key there is I want you to see that this church in Acts chapter 17 was born out of a sense of, mis- of, of mission. It was an intentional thing. Now, consider our own story circumstances quite different. There's been no angry mobs involved here. We, too, are a church born out of mission. It was back in the late 70s that some folks from Lexington Park Baptist Church had a vision and had a desire, led by the Lord, to plant a church in Leonardtown. So they began praying, they began meeting there in Leonardtown in the late 70s to plant another Bible-believing evangelical church right here in this community. And they saw the need specifically was needed at the time in Leonardtown. In fact, they were told it will never happen. Leonardtown is too Catholic. It will not happen that a church will be planted. It won't happen. Well, they prayed, they met, and the Lord continued to be at work. We know that Leonardtown grew under faithful leadership until it reached the point of needing to either add a third worship service or do something to accommodate the continued growth. As a result of that, in 2010, obviously, the, as most of us know, maybe you're new this morning, but I'm just bringing you up to speed. In 2010, the Callaway campus of Leonardtown Baptist Church was formed right here and has been meeting here ever since until just last week we launched as Redeeming Grace Baptist Church. We have been born out of a sense of mission and intentionality. Therefore, that's what we must continue to do. 
It's not only because of where we've been, but it's because of what we see the pattern is in the Bible. As a, as a result, we, we are who we are because others have seen the, the necessity to continue the mission of God, pray, uh, spreading the, the, the gospel, but at the same time starting new works. We were born out of mission. But now what? What do we do? Here we are. <laughs> right? Here we are. What do we do? We just, just exist? We just keep doing the things that we do during the week? What, what do we do? No, we are called to be a people who have been saved by grace, who now have been gathered as a community of grace to be heralds of that grace to our community and beyond. God's redeeming grace establishes us as His people, but it also informs what we do as his people. It establishes us as his people, but it informs what we do as his people, and therefore we are called to live out the mission that God has created for us to be involved in. God doesn't need us. He's sovereign. He's capable, but he invites us. He delights in including us in his mission to pursue the lost. And so here we are as recipients of grace now to be on mission to communicate that grace. And so, with that in mind, as we consider 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, I want us to point out, I want us to look at five important attributes as demonstrated here in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, or 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2, I should say, five important attributes about the mission that they were called to, but that we are called to engage in as well. These are critical attributes about the mission that God has invited us to participate in, that we must live out, that we must see reflected in our congregation. And so when you're writing these down, this is for you. It's not for the person beside of you. It's for you individually and us corporately. Five attributes about the mission we are called to embrace and live out. Here we go. Number one, this mission is a verbal mission. This mission that we are called to participate in, in communicating God's grace to others is a verbal mission. Notice when Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica, if you go back to Acts 17, they began in the synagogue, what? Reasoning from the scriptures. Did they just go there and reason in their brain without talking to anyone? No, reasoning, communicating, sharing Christ. They were teaching the things of God, and so they were talking to people about Christ. Here in chapter 1 of Thessalonians, verse 4, we, uh, verse 4 and 5, specifically in verse 5, it says, for we know your love and chosen because our gospel came to you, and he says it almost in passing, but I don't want you to pass it up, not only in word, and he's moving on to something more, and we're going to get to that, But not only in word means that the word communication, words were involved, right? Not only in word, which means words were used, words were communicated. So let's talk about that for a minute. When you think about what happened in Thessalonica and when you think about what happened in other places, there was much more involved than just the communication of words, but there wasn't less than words, right? It wasn't that they just went and miraculous things happen without communicating. No, words were involved. There's a, there's a mistaken notion that has existed for some time that, that we can somehow share the gospel with people without speaking the gospel to people. 
And the idea has, has often been supported and I think has come from a famous quote attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, which, which says, preach the gospel at all times and, when necessary, use words. There are two problems with that. Number one, it's not biblical. Number two, he never said it. The idea there, I think, is, is healthy that, yes, our lives ought to be a display, a demonstration of the gospel, but that's not sufficient. We go to Romans chapter 10. We know that Paul, there to the church at Rome, said that words were necessary, right? People, people are saved by hearing, right? Hearing what? Hearing the words. Verse 10 of chapter 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. And on and goes the rest of that text. Something we must keep in mind as we live out our mission, as individuals, as the community of believers that we are, is that at some point, if you are going to communicate the gospel to someone, you are going to have to speak to them. The gospel demands that words be shared whether they're heard, whether they're read, whether they're preached from a corporate gathering like this. It's a verbal mission. You know, I think there are two extremes that we have to avoid as the church, and I think we've seen these extremes throughout the history of the church. We see them today. One is what, what, what we could call social gospel, and, and that's just merely serving people and meeting their needs without sharing Christ to them, and, and that is certainly an error, not that we're meeting needs. That's part of what we're called to do, but that we just serve, serve, serve without ever communicating Christ. And that's an error, but then there's what I would call, and I just made this up, an angry gospel, where we just preach judgment and fire and brimstone, and we tell them about the horrors of hell without loving them and without truly serving and caring for them. Yes, they must hear about the judgment. Yes, they must know the danger they're in. But friends, we are called to love and serve and, 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 and come alongside of them in a very intentional, careful way. But we must communicate Christ and their need for Him. Yes, we must our, immerse ourselves in the community, serving the needs. We must feed the hungry. We must clothe the naked. We must house the homeless, help the hurting. We must do all of those things because it brings glory to God and we're called to serve our fellow man and we, we're called to care for people in that way and we must do so genuinely with, with generosity in our hearts and with kindness and love in our hearts. But that is not the gospel. That by itself is not the gospel. We're called to care for them and to communicate their greatest need, which that is Christ. At the same time, we're not merely called to only preach judgment at people and never love them and meet their needs. We are called to love them and meet needs and care for them. As Christ did and as he demonstrated. Friends, a verbal mission 
means that we will speak Christ to people. We will share with them how to have hope and point them to Christ. Most naturally, that will come to, through the context of intentional relationships. But even it, it will even come in relationships that aren't, aren't coming natural. So we are to bring the gospel to bear upon people's lives in every opportunity that we see. It's a verbal mission. You can't take words away and expect us to engage in gospel ministry. We must speak. We must communicate. Number two, it's a powerful mission. While our mission includes the necessity of communicating, the necessity of sharing Christ, the necessity of of pointing people verbally to Christ, the success, listen, this is good news for you and me, the success of our mission is not dependent ultimately on how we say something. The success of our mission is not ultimately dependent upon how we say it. It's dependent, I think, upon if we say something or not, but on how you articulate. People are so afraid, and in a sense, we should be concerned on how we communicate the gospel, absolutely, but sometimes Christians are so afraid that they're going to mess things up, they don't say anything. God's big. He can even use your messed up words to save people. Notice what the text says. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Stop right there for a moment. Friends, this was no ordinary news. This wasn't like sitting down in front of your your TV or your iPad, listening to the latest or watching the latest news or reading the latest news. We are dealing with spiritual realities here. Listen, our words alone, that's why you need all of verse 5. Our words alone, no matter how clearly presented, will never be able to penetrate the heart of a spiritually dead person unless the Holy Spirit is there present to powerfully awaken them from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20, Paul says, For the kingdom of God does not consist of talk or words, but in power. If you go to Ephesians chapter 2, we know we see a demonstration of that power. Ephesians 2, verse 4 God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Friends, the source of this power is none other than the Holy Spirit of God. Our words, or, or our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Friends, No matter how much you preach or how much you share the gospel with people, if it is not accompanied by the Holy Spirit, hearts will not be changed. In Acts 1.8, we know the apostles were told you will receive power. You will receive power when? What? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
And then you'll be my witnesses. You shall be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. What does this mean? What does it mean that we're engaged in a powerful mission? Does that, does that mean, okay, well, if it's a powerful mission, I just need to talk loud. The louder I talk, the more people are going to hear, right? Well, I'm all for loud talking in appropriate context, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the active role of the Holy Spirit. What this means is that we must be a dependent church, a praying church, a pleading church. Friends, if your family member or your neighbor, or your coworker, or your classmate, or that person you've been trying to engage week after week after week, if they are going to be transformed, it's going to be ultimately because the Spirit of God comes upon them, convicts them of their sins, gives them eyes to see the beauty of Christ, and leads them home to glory. It's not ultimately dependent upon you. I'm trying to help us here. I'm trying to encourage you. Because I think a lot of times we think it's dependent upon us. But we're called to engage people with the gospel, but it's ultimately dependent upon the Lord. It's a powerful mission. I'm weak. I'm, I'm incapable. Well, yes, Paul said the same thing. Who's sufficient for these things? No one. We're flawed men and women. We're, we're sinners just as much as anyone else. We're just as in need of the grace that we're sharing as anyone else. But it's through the power of the spoken word that the Spirit of God uses to bring conviction and to bring hope, to bring, to bring change. Listen, on our own, we can do nothing for spiritually dead people. But listen, here's the good news. God can raise the dead. God can raise the dead. No matter how difficult you think it is, no matter how hard-hearted you may see someone, God can do a work. That's why it's calling us, knowing it's a powerful mission, it calls us to pray, to plead that the Lord would awaken, the Lord would work. Because there's power in the presence of the Holy Spirit, we can therefore have confidence in this mission, which leads me to number three. It's a confident mission. It's a confident mission. Notice Paul says that the gospel came not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with what? Full conviction. Full conviction, he says. Or maybe some translations say, with much assurance. What this is saying is that as Paul and these early believers preached the gospel, listen, they were absolutely convinced of the message they were proclaiming. They actually believed this stuff. It came with full conviction, with absolute assurance that, listen, the things I'm sharing with you are absolutely certain, and it is your hope, it is, is the way that you can be made right with the Holy God. It's good news. It's true. It's transformative. Believe in Christ. Sometimes I wonder if when we're talking to others, or maybe, maybe because we don't talk to others, is that a demonstration of our lack of assurance? Our lack of confidence in the power of the gospel. They were changed by the gospel so much so that they were willing to suffer for it. They were so convinced and so 
certain of this good news that they suffered. Listen to verse 1 of chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. You know what Paul's saying? We've, we've been through it already. We're willing to do it again. As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Where did this boldness come from? It's because they worked out every day and they could take some whippings? Because they, 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 they just had that surge of, 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 of boldness? No, it came from the power of the gospel that they were absolutely certain of. So they preached even in the midst of much conflict, even in the, much, even in the midst of much persecution and affliction. Friends, you will not be willing to suffer for something unless you have absolute confidence in it. You won't. You will not be willing to suffer for something unless you have absolute confidence in it. One of the things that that ought to characterize the members of Redeeming Grace Baptist Church is the absolute confidence that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not confident in ourselves. We are confident in Christ, in his power, in his ability to to transform all peoples. We're confident in that. That's why we then communicate. We'll be demonstrated in our boldness, our courage to speak to others, whether corporately or or individually. It will be demonstrated even in our perseverance of the gospel Even when we see no fruit. I've been in places before where where it's been a very saturated culture. The gospel has been so saturated that it's almost people are are calloused to it. And you don't see a lot of visible fruit. You see a lot of griping. But you don't see a lot of visible fruit and, and and. Right now I'm reading a, a biography on George Whitfield and, and just the, the great awakening that took place through, through the power of the Holy Spirit, but through men like he and others, Jonathan Edwards. And how God did a massive work. But it was these brothers and even sisters in Christ who were confident in the gospel. And they were seeing much fruit. But, but even when we're not seeing that, we still remain confident in the gospel. It's one of the things that will be a telltale sign of whether or not you are confident in the gospel is, when, is where you go. Where, where, where do you run when times get hard? When things get tough, when, when, when pressure starts to mount, where do you run? Do you run to Christ? Do you see, do you believe that the gospel is powerful, that it informs everything that you do, everything that you believe, everything that you think? Where do you go? It informs everything. Friends, we have a confident mission because we have a powerful gospel. We have a powerful Savior who transforms people. Number four, it's an affectionate mission. It's an affectionate mission. Paul begins his letter by expressing his gratitude for these believers. We see that in many of his letters, but here we see it as well. We give thanks for you. We give thanks to God for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers but later on we see just how much he cared for these people look at verse 5 of chapter 2 Paul says for we never came with words of flattery as you know 
nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. So Paul's saying, we didn't come to, to make you feel good about yourselves or come with some kind of greedy monetary motive to seek to exploit you somehow and make money. Nor, verse 6, did we seek glory from people. They weren't about themselves, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But, listen, here's the key. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. What I want you to see there is when Paul and Silas and these others engaged in gospel mission, it was not some kind of lifeless, unengaged with the people type of mission. When they went to these places, it was all in. They loved these people. They served these people. They cared for these people. They developed a desire and affection for the people in which they were serving. It's an affectionate mission. Paul didn't simply go and preach and check them off the list and move on. You see his affection, even when he was run out of town, as he was here in Thessalonica, he would write back to them to encourage and to teach and to help them to cling to the hope that they had. This this brother had a, a, a love, a genuine care for these people. Compassion. Friends, compassion must always fuel our mission. We are, you know, sometimes it comes across that when we're talking about mission, engaging community, engaging culture, engaging the nations with the gospel, and and sometimes we say these things, and and, and I want to be careful on how we communicate even about this, because sometimes we say, well, we're called to do this because the Bible says so. Well, that seems genuine, doesn't it? Well, yeah, it says so. But are you telling me that the only reason you're going to, to, to talk to somebody about Christ or to give money so that missionaries can be sent is because the Bible says so? Yes, we need to obey the Bible, but no, you ought to be compelled and driven by a genuine compassion for people. Our mission must be driven by love and compassion. I love what Charles Bridges once said. Now a Christian, he says, in this as in every other feature, he's talking about having compassion, now a Christian in this as in every other feature will be conformed to the image of his Lord. His heart will therefore be touched with a tender concern for the honor of God and pitying concern for those wretched sinners that keep not his law and are perishing in their own transgressions. Friends, having been recipients of God's grace, we will want desperately for those around us to also be recipients of his grace. If you do not have a genuine compassion and love for the unconverted, for those who are outside of of God's family at this moment. 
then it has to be asked. If you don't have that compassion and genuine love, you, you have to wonder, do you even know the love of God in your life? For God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And you say, well, these people are pagan. They're hard to love because they're so wretched and ungodly. Well, who do you think you were? Mr. and Mrs. Righteous? Before you met Christ? You were no different. Your sins may have manifest themselves differently, but you had, you're made of the same raw material. Sinner. That's, sometimes we lose perspective. We get frustrated with the, the, the sinful culture in which we live and yeah we ought to be grieved and 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 have a holy anger towards unrighteousness and and seek to bring justice to bear and righteousness to bear friends that can't move you away from love the psalmist said in psalm 119 136 my eyes shed tear, streams of tears because people do not keep your law jesus in matthew 23 verse 37 oh jerusalem jerusalem he's broken over the city the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. We've looked before at Romans 9, how Paul says with, with, with such tender compassion, he says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Friends, we, we, must, we must cultivate a genuine compassion and affection for the unconverted, for our community. We must. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, you, you do that by going back and remembering the gospel in your own life. By looking to grace in your own life and, and being informed by the fact that God loved you that much that He gave His only Son for you and Redeem you. Because we serve in a mission that is driven by love and compassion. And that has to be fleshed out in, in our relationships. It's love, it's compassion that, that leads you to engage that coworker with, with the truth. And you say, well, I can't always do that at work. We'll take them to lunch. You can do it there. It's love and compassion that's, that's going to, to lead you to, to invite your neighbors or your coworkers or whoever over to dinner and have investment in their lives, ongoing conversation. I'm not saying that, that you have to always beat them over the head with the gospel and always go through this outline of the gospel. You don't have to do that, but, but it needs to be leading to those conversations where they can trust you and, and know that you genuinely care for them. You have to demonstrate care. It's sad to say these days that Sometimes we, we have to sort of earn the right to be heard. As, as a family, you can engage other families. You get to love. You, you have to be compelled by love. There's, there's so many ways that we can engage our community with the gospel, but you have to remember that that, that engagement must be driven and, and, and motivated by love. There's so many opportunities that we have. I, I was telling my... my older two kids the other day driving them to school that, that they have a significant opportunity to make a godly impact on a multitude of people 
And I say the same, that, same thing to every one of you this morning. Think about the context in which you, you live, the, the context in which you work, the context in which you go to school. God has placed you in a context, and you have to be, be, learn to think from a missional perspective, from almost like a, like a missionary. This is your opportunity to impact, to invest. And that's just individually. Not to mention what we could do as small groups or even as a larger congregation. That's why you hear me often talk about how your, your, your home groups, if all you do is gather every single week to study the Bible, which is imperative. Please don't hear me say it's not. It is. But if that's all you do is have your holy huddle and you never engage the community around you, you're missing the point. Small groups have a significant opportunity to love your community, to invest in your community. We, we have increasing opportunities. Hopefully in a few weeks you're going to hear about one of those opportunities, about the work going on down, down here at the Mission on Great Mills Road. Uh, Omar and Nancy and others have been, been, been invested in that, that, that ministry for a long time. I'm going to have him come and share about opportunities of how we can get further engaged in that opportunity and that that ministry. That's just one, and that's a significant one because it engages all kinds of people and, and has all kinds of opportunity. There's opportunity all around us. It's not the lack of opportunity. Jesus said, didn't he, that the, the, the fields are ripe. It's not the harvest that's the problem. It's the laborers. We need more of those. By the way, we also, I'm coming to realize the longer I'm here that that we live in a very transient community. And I haven't taken this up with, with other leaders in the church yet, but I think I'm going to make, a, make it a rule. You know me, I'm not into legalism, but I think we'll make it a rule that if you're here for three years, you can't leave. I don't care what the Navy says. You can't leave until you've reproduced yourself. That's just going to be a rule, a standing rule. You come in, I'm going to ask you day one, how long are you here for? Three years. You're not leaving until you've reproduced yourself. That's just a standing rule. Well, I'm here for an indefinite period of time. Good, you're going to reproduce yourself multiple times. I think that's fair, don't you? That's not much to ask. In three years, can you reproduce yourself? Or two years, however long you're here? I think that's pretty generous, actually. But again, all of that is driven by love. Love for our community, love for cities will be demonstrated in the way that we sacrifice our time and resources to reach out. Because I don't have to I don't have to try to dig into your hearts, which I can't do. All we have to do is see how you spend your time, what you spend your resources on, and then you can begin to see where your heart really is. The Lord's been really challenging me, me lately in, in that same regard. My prayer, though, is that we would be known as an affectionate, compassionate, loving people, that we would desire to reach people in our community of all types and that that would be driven by love and concern for their soul. And then number five. Last but not least. It's a costly mission. This is one of the attributes about the mission that, that we often like to skip or maybe not bring up. But listen. If you and your family and your church family are going to be serious, which to me it's not optional, 
about the mission that God has called us to engage in, that redeeming grace informs our mission, if we're going to be serious about this, it will be costly. It will. It will not be easy. In fact, it will often be difficult and often be painful and often be costly. Just look at the, the Bible behind that. Just look at the, what we see here in Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul says it in verses 1 and 2 about himself. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but we'd already suffered and been shamefully treated. And with boldness we come to declare the gospel to you in much conflict, in the midst of much conflict. Paul and Silas and others knew the conflict, the cost, and were willing to continue in that mission. But not only them, look, look at verse, verses um, 14 through 16. For you, brothers, now he's talking about the Thessalonians became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you, what, suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. You yourselves suffered the same things. Paul suffered, the Thessalonians suffered. They were engaged in this mission knowing that it was a costly mission. It was costly. 1606. But a Spanish explorer discovered a chain of about 80 islands stretched across 450 miles of the South Pacific Ocean. And these islands were inhabited by peoples whose existence were largely unknown to the rest of the world for, for centuries. Didn't really know much about this group of islands and the people that lived there. We found this islands 230 years later, in 1839, two London missionaries made their first attempt to bring the gospel to these unengaged, unreached peoples in these islands. But only minutes, minutes after reaching the shore, they were killed and eaten by cannibals. You said, that's costly. A few years later, in 1858, John Payton and his wife set sail to these same islands. But his decision to do this didn't come without much criticism. In fact, on one account before leaving, a respected elder come, came to the couple and, and chided the couple. He said, you will be eaten by cannibals if you go. And I love how Peyton responded. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid to the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. By God's grace, Peyton was not eaten by cannibals. Although his wife and child died not too long after he went there, and his life was threatened many times, he persevered through much conflict and endured much cost. But he eventually saw the entire island in which he served. He served several islands, but he eventually saw the entire island come to Christ. 
Friends, gospel ministry is often risky. You might not be eaten by cannibals. In fact, it's highly unlikely. Or, or killed, that is highly likely, depending on where you go today. But you will face opposition. That's just reality. And each of us must be willing to take risks for the sake of the gospel. Listen, gospel ministry is challenging ministry. It is challenging ministry because there are, there's a spiritual battle going on in the human heart. It's not an easy mission. God never calls us to do ministry when it's only safe and only easy. There's no such thing. There, there's ministry and mission that's easier and safer than others, yes. And I'm not saying that you should intentionally create danger for yourself. But I am saying that joining God in his mission will require challenges that will push you beyond everything you know is comfortable. And I'm not interested in pastoring a comfortable church. I'm just simply not interested. I'm not interested in being a comfortable pastor. I'm not interested in being a comfortable Christian. Although I live a life of extreme comfort. Friends, we are called to engage in this mission compelled by love and, and compassion, knowing that it's going to cost. And I just ask you simply to consider what, what risk have you taken for the gospel lately? Or we could ask it this way, what conversations have you avoided lately? Maybe conversations are comfortable when it's about ESPN highlights or Pinterest. But when it comes to pressing further to Christ, it's so easy to turn that conversation off. Since God's redeeming grace not only gives us a new identity, it now redirects our purpose and our mission. It, it governs what we do as the people of God. As we live in a community in need of God's redeeming grace. You live beside them, you work beside them, you have classes with them. You live under the same roof with them in some cases. You see them in the grocery store, you pass them on the road, your kids play sports with them. We live in a community in need of grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 14, Paul says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but men, as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Folks, we are a fragrance. The Thessalonican believers had been a fragrance. We're told that their faith, their faith had sounded forth everywhere. Friends, we are a fragrance. 
an aroma of grace. To some, that will be pleasing. To some, we will stink. But we are called to be that aroma because that is the only hope this world has. Redeeming grace establishes us as his people, but it also informs what we do as his people. Let's be found faithful. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. And as we pray, in just a moment we're going to have our song of conclusion, and in just a moment we're going to sing together. But as we, as we do that, before we do that, and as, as Amy will be playing in just a moment, I want you to just take a moment. I don't want us just to rush into this song and, and run out the door. Unless you have an emergency. But I want you to just upon what God has said in his word. As you reflect upon who we are as redeemed people and, and the mission to which we've been called to engage in, I want you to just to, to reflect upon how you are doing in that mission. Christians, what are, what are ways that God is calling and exposing, calling you to and exposing you to, of how to be on mission with Him? What opportunities do you have? What opportunities have you avoided? Maybe there's time that you just need to repent. Since it begins in our homes, it begins where we are, and it goes out from there. So I just want you to just have a moment of reflection and examination in your own heart before we sing of what the Lord is doing, what opportunities you have, and that you would commit yourself even now afresh and anew to be agents of grace as those who know grace. So let's pray together and in a moment we'll stand and sing. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you have loved us and that you have called us to yourself. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Father, even now, my prayer is that if there are those that are present with us today that don't have hope, they don't have the experience of knowing Christ and knowing his redeeming grace, Lord, would you work in their hearts even now and show them the the hope that they can have through placing their faith in Christ and knowing that their sins can be forgiven through Him. And Father, as Your redeemed people, Father, I, I pray that, that we would not simply be a people known as redeeming grace, 
but that we would be a people known for intentionally, lovingly spreading that redeeming grace in this community to the ends of the earth. Father, we know that we have endless opportunities. So Lord, would you help us to have fresh eyes to see, fresh ears to hear? Would you grant us opportunity after opportunity to engage our culture, our our community, our world with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ? Father, just help us to be a people of mission, people of purpose, a people of grace, that we would love our neighbor so much so that we would not remain silent. So God, would you help us to be a people on mission with you to your glory and for the eternal good of those we know and love. And even those we don't know yet, Lord, would you give us new friendships, new opportunities, new relationships to be an aroma of grace to those around us. Father, you know our hearts, you know our struggles, you know know where we are in this, Lord. So would you lead us to faithful obedience to your glory, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.